Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I want to get to our next guest, Tim Line. He's the CEO of Antares Capital. And Antares, for the folks, they're a lender to middle market PE-owned companies. So it's always a good chat with Tim to get a sense of what's going on with some of these small and mid-cap companies out there uh, as they deal with higher inflation, uh, the backside of a pandemic, potential recession. Uh, Tim gives us uh, some good thoughts there. Tim, thanks so much for joining us here. And I love just to get kind of, we're in a time of flux here. We've got rising inflation. We've got rising interest rates. We've got potential for a recession. As you talk to some of these smaller and mid-sized companies, what are they generally seeing? How are they adapting? Sure. Good morning, Paul and Creedy, and pleasure to be here. So we have almost 500 middle market portfolio companies. And what I'm hearing from them is that demand drivers remain favorable. Revenue growth is still quite strong. And while there's certainly some inflation concern, our borrowers have managed cost inflation with price increases. The most significant challenge for these portfolio companies is navigating this tight, tight labor market. So it's kind of how do I retain my best people? Where do I find new talent? And this hiring issue is impacting almost all industries, and it's across all personnel levels. You made a key point there, offsetting costs with price increases. And to your point, it has worked quite well, not just for middle market companies as you're focusing on, but I would like to say broader S&P 500 companies as well. But I'm curious how long that can actually last. At what point do price increases become so sticky that it ends up leading to demand destruction? Sure. It, it, it's a very good question. And, and I would say it's not sustainable. I mean, we've, we've seen companies in our portfolio implement a 10% price increase followed by a 12% price increase. And at some point, there's going to be the customers are going to resist and just say, I'm not willing to do that. But what's so interesting right now is the customers need the product. So because of all the supply chain disruption, they're willing to pay the extra price to get the product to then be able to meet the demand from their customers. So what I love to just get your sense of, again, small mid-market, mid-cap kind of M&A activity. The last few years, much to my surprise, were generally very strong despite the, the pandemic and the challenges there. Um, what's the M&A activity this year? Sure. So we did experience a frenzy of activity in 2021 with record deal volume. LBO volume is certainly down this year. But notwithstanding this, what we've seen is very strong add-on acquisition activity in 2022. So our private equity sponsors are always looking for opportunities to grow their portfolio companies through new services or new product lines. And we really expect this strong add-on acquisition activity to continue for the remainder of this year and, and maybe into 2023 as well. 
But how is that financed exactly? How are they financed is we, so we and other lenders provide that financing. So sponsor buys a company, uh, the deal is capitalized with equity and debt. And when they have add-on acquisitions, assuming the capital structure is right-sized, we'll be able to provide 100% financing for those acquisitions. If it's a really large acquisition, the sponsor may need to step up with additional equity as well. So talk to us about the private debt uh, marketplace. It's been an area of good growth. That's where you guys play. Talk to us about that market in terms of uh, you know, the capital that's available, the rates that you'll lend, the liquidity in that marketplace. Give us a sense of the overall health of that private debt market. Sure. There's uh, good reason for private debt's rapid growth. So the industry's demonstrated resiliency through numerous economic, economic cycles over the last 20 years. If you think about it for the investor, private debt really offers more favorable risk-adjusted returns than many other asset classes. Importantly, right now, with the increasing interest rates, it offers an inflation hedge because our loans are floating rate instruments. So you ask, like, what would be a rate? We've moved from LIBOR to SOFR, so it might be SOFR plus 550, SOFR plus 650. Um, and we don't really see the current economic environment changing private debt's appeal for investors. As a matter of fact, private debt assets under management are projected to grow at double-digit rates over the next five years. Over the next five years, double-digit rates. Wow. Um, double-digit rates per year, yes. Wow. And so where, where, where's that capital come from? Is that coming from pension funds, endowments, that types of thing? Exactly. So, uh, and it's from all around the world, right? So it's a lot of pensions, sovereign wealth funds, and others looking for, they need yield. So they need yield to be able to pay to their pensioners on a current basis, and private debt offers that. Uh, it, it's an attractive product, right, because you're investing yep. in an instrument that provides uh, a current yield and an attractive yield. So it's investors all around the world, pensions, sovereign wealth funds, endowments, et cetera. All right, Tim, great stuff. Always a fascinating discussion. Tim Line, CEO of Antares Capital. Get a good sense when we talk to Tim about the state of small, you know, mid-size M&A out there, not just the big blockbuster deals that are on the Bloomberg terminal every day. We also get a good sense of the private debt market, which, again, is a, a growing source of capital for, um, you know, companies that are looking for growth capital, private equity firms that are looking for growth capital. You don't just need to go to your local bank. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. The S&P 500 still down almost 14% on a year-to-date basis. And then I looked at the FTSE 100, our good friends over in the UK. It's up 1.3%. I did not know that. So I said, we need to check in with Tim Craighead. He's a director of research, senior European strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence and the pride of Southwest Virginia. Tim, thanks for joining us. What do you guys get right over there that we're not doing over here? Some pretty good relative performance for the FTSE. So, Paul, thanks for having me on. Uh, look, I think there are a couple of things to consider. Um, one is the makeup of the FTSE. Remember, it doesn't have any tech, which has gotten pummeled in the U.S., you know, notwithstanding the bounce that we've had back uh, over the last six weeks. Um, it's got a big chunk of it is is consumer global brands that are also benefiting from a weak pound because they get to translate back strong dollars into the UK. And it's got a big chunk of energy uh, with high energy prices and a big chunk of financials with rising interest rates. And all this coalesces to a FTSE that's doing really well by treading water. Now, the, the, the caveat in the offset is it all depends on your currency reference point. If you look at uh, the S&P 500 in pounds where I'm sitting, um, it's down a half a percent. Oh, um, okay. So <laughs> you got to keep that one in mind, too. Give us a sense, Tim, just kind of I'd love to just get your thoughts of kind of what you're seeing and hearing from companies over in Europe. How tough is it I mean, from an economic perspective? And boy, how tough could it be when you, if you guys really are going to have this really challenging winter from an energy perspective? Yeah, well, fingers crossed for a mild winter, that's for sure. And, it, it, you know, it, it's interesting because, you know, inflation being the, 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 the bugbear that it is for all markets right now, it, it's different in different places. In Europe, um, the, the key issue is, is energy um, in terms of driving inflation. And it's also a key risk factor from the standpoint of economic growth. Um, you know, our calculations are if Russia does cut off the gas and industry is what's going to be affected from the standpoint of, of potential shutdowns in terms of, of energy consumption, you've you, you got to keep people's houses warm. Um, you could see, for example, the DAX, the main, Europe, uh, the main German index, uh, with, with consensus expectations cut by something on the order of 25% from where we are right now for 2023. So the profit impact could be quite significant relative to what's baked in at this point. And Germany is definitely the poster child from the standpoint of where the most impact is. And to your point, Tim, as we look at what the DAX is doing in particular, the negative correlation between the DAX and natural gas prices is just building. It's getting stronger and stronger. It really shows you that even on an intraday basis, you do start to see that reaction to the energy prices you're speaking about. I'm curious, though, about what changes it. Is 
the idea of a recession kind of this inevitability that investors have to kind of get past to really be bullish on Europe again? Um, yeah, I think that's probably accurate. Frankly, in ways, I think it's true you know, globally. Um, you know, it, valuations are now down into the, the the low teens. You're looking at the, the Euro stocks 50, which is kind of our equivalent of the Dow Jones index, right? And it's now at 11 times forward earnings. You know, the S&P sitting at 18 and change. So valuation is such to where a lot is already baked in from the standpoint of expectations of, of risk. Um, I think the biggest issue is when do we see peak inflation and, you know, the, the, the peak in monetary policy tightening. And the bad news is going to continue in terms of economic growth for a while. But when we when we sense that we're at that inflection and we don't see it yet, um, that's when you can start to think ahead from the standpoint of when valuation will be more important. Right now, we think earnings for the rest of the year are, are, are going to be the, the big thing. And we see earnings risk right now. So a sloppy market outlook. Uh, Tim, uh, Marcus Ashworth from Bloomberg Opinion based in London. We have him on uh, uh, pretty often. He is not afraid to show his disdain for the ECB um, and its approach here. What's the market feel like in terms of or what's the market discounting in terms of the ECB and its ability to flight to, to fight inflation going forward? Yeah, it's a, it's it, it's a good question, Paul. And you know, Marcus has some great views. I, I, central banks, regardless of where they are, they're between a rock and a hard a rock and a hard place. They they can't ease the energy crisis by um, yep. by supplying more oil. Um, the only thing they can do is is accelerate or decelerate economic growth. And so it's a best and indirect um, sort of tool. And, you know, maybe they are late to the game. We can talk about that all day long. But if they want to have an impact on what's going on with inflation, their only option is to slow economic growth by raising interest rates. And Lord knows whether they're late to it or not, that's where they're headed now. And they seem to be getting on that bus. Um, and certainly the BOE is, and here in England, and, and obviously the Fed is, and we'll hear more on this, as you guys said, at Jackson Hole. Tim, give us a sense. You've been in London now a long time. I mean, you're born and raised in southwestern Virginia, but you, in your career on Wall Street and at Bloomberg, you've been all over the world. You've run business businesses for Bloomberg in Hong Kong and New York and now London. What's it like in, in England these days, in the UK? How are consumers feeling? Um, you know, I, I guess there's this, I'm, I'm sure there's this tremendous concern about energy security come, come this winter, but how's the consumer over there in the UK and Europe? Um, you know, it, it's an interesting sort of juxtaposition. Um, if, if I go to the local restaurants, there's plenty of people there. There's still yep. crowds in the pubs, you know, Lord knows on a nice sunny afternoon, especially a Wednesday or Thursday, Thursday now being the new Friday, <laughs> you know, the, the, the pubs are packed yep. outside, as you know, we do here. Um, and if you go to the Regent Street, um, there's plenty of activity. Um, that said, um, you know, that's only one element. And, and clearly there's an awful lot of press reports about especially those on lower income, they're really struggling. Yep. And so I think that there's a real dichotomy right now, but boots on the ground, actually things feel pretty normal. Retail sales look pretty good. Yep. 
Yep, good stuff. All right, Tim Craighead. Uh, always appreciate getting the Euro perspective from Tim. Uh, Tim's based in London for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's a director of research, senior strategist over there. He's been on Wall Street for well over 30 years. Goldman Sachs, uh, Bloomberg, uh, wealth of experience, and we appreciate getting some of his time from London. Later this week, uh, some economic nerds are going to get together at Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I've been there. It's beautiful. You can do fly fishing. You can see all these crazy animals that you'd never see bison elk i mean i mean bison are huge um anywho they're gonna get together i'm not really sure what they're gonna do but our next guest can help us figure that out janelle Marte, economics and federal reserve reporter for bloomberg news all right janelle we're sending out michael mckee bloomberg's economics guru we're gonna send out the surveillance team uh tom john and lisa out to uh, jackson hole can you tell us and our tell me and our listeners what is this jackson hole get together who goes and what do they do and what's the purpose so as you said, it's a big deal, especially for economic nerds. Um, they go out to enjoy nature, but also to talk about what's happening in the economy, in the not just here, but globally. And it's often a, a chance or a good place for Fed officials or uh, Fed uh, presidents to, you know, they'll, they usually use it like to, as a chance to unveil some big policy change. Um, but this year, uh, I think what people are looking for is any guidance from the Fed as to when they might slow rate increases or if they're planning to do so in the near term. You know, Janelle, I think it's so funny that Paul Sweeney keeps calling them nerds. I mean, clearly you were the jock in school. <laughs> no, I, but I mean, they're, they're, they're the smart folks. Let's put it that way. <laughs> they are the smart yeah. folks. Janelle, I'm curious about how much of this could be anticlimactic to some extent. It almost seems like at least this week for the markets, a lot of this is going to be in wait and see mode to see if indeed Chairman Powell and by extension the Federal Reserve is as hawkish as the market is expecting. What happens if this becomes a huge nothing burger? I mean, listen, anytime that Powell speaks, especially when he speaks at Jackson Hole, everyone is everyone listens, right? Last year, he made a big speech trying to defend the idea that inflation was going to be transitory. Of course, he's since canceled that word and said um, inflation is here. We need to get it get it under control. So when he speaks on, on Friday morning, everyone's everyone's going to be listening to just to hear what he has to say, you know, especially given what he said last year. Um, and yeah, maybe we won't get a big signal. I mean, he's not very likely to give us a hint as to what they're going to do exactly in September, for example, because he's already said they're moving away from that specific forward guidance. They're not going to tell us they're going to do it meeting by meeting. Um, however, you know, if he if he sends a message that, you know, apparently, you know, from the from the July meeting, the, the takeaway that a lot of investors um, uh, grabbed was that the Fed might might soon slow down the pace of rate increases and officials have really pushed back against that. So um, we'll see if he sends like a really clear message now. And you're right, he might not. Uh, but certainly that is what people are looking for. Janelle, based upon your re reporting, what's the consensus here about recession? Are we in one? Are we going to get into one? If so, this year, next year, how deep? What are you, what are you hearing and seeing? So I would say that there is no consensus. We're in a really unique and challenging time in that, you know, some economic data is pointing to a slowdown as we've seen the GDP numbers. But then we have some really strong 
indicators, like what happened with jobs, for example, where we saw twice as many jobs added last month as anticipated. So, you know, I think Fed officials are looking at this, trying to figure it out. There are some people saying that we might actually see GDP revised upward later and that that might help to close the gap. But really, people are just waiting to see and figure it figure it out. And I think that as we learn more, that that's what's going to inform policymakers as to what they what they'll eventually end up doing with rates. Because you know, economic data is not perfect; it is often revised. Uh, some people, have, some officials have already blamed that as to why they were a little bit slow to respond in, in 2020 um, or 2021, rather, as inflation continued to soar. And so um, I think we'll just have to continue to look at the data and see how all the pieces fall into place. Janelle, I'm a markets gal. And one of the big conversations in markets has been that the Fed is constantly behind the curve and has been for years. I'm curious, though, if they have actually caught up or on the cusp of doing so, given that we've now had two 75 basis point hikes and 50 and 25 before that as well. So how much further do they have to go before they can say, well, the Fed is now on top of things? Really good point there. The Fed was behind the curve earlier. They've said so themselves. But at this point, I mean, they've really aggressively raised interest rates. And they're at a point now where the rates might be considered neutral, which is an area that people are not really sure where that is. But the point being that they've said they're not going to move into restrictive. So continuing to increase rates to the point where that is intentionally meant to slow economic growth and cool demand and bring prices, bring price gains down, bring inflation down. So they've said where they're going, you know, where that endpoint is, it's hard to know. They don't know themselves. They're trying to gauge uh, clues or get clues from what happens with inflation and what happens with the economy. But we, the, the, the level of tightening that we've seen in the past few months is really the, the highest that we've seen in decades from the Fed. So um, right. they're, they're, they're taking strong action. Uh, they are, and we'll certainly pay attention to uh, the news coming out of uh, Jackson Hole later this week. Uh, Friday is kind of the big day, uh, and again, the surveillance team will have full coverage from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I'm sure they're going to have a really cool setup out there uh, in the middle of nowhere, but it is beautiful out there. Janelle Marte, economics and Federal Reserve reporter from Bloomberg News, joins us uh, with some calls there on the economy. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Steeple and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Steeple's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Steeple last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? 
With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. You know, we've had oil really pulling back, you know, over the last several months. We hit 120 on WTI crude uh, several months back, and then we got down here below 90. A little bit of a spike here today, up 3%. I want to just get a sense of kind of where the short-term trends are. I'm really digging this below $4 a barrel uh, or $4 a gallon gasoline. Uh, we'll get a sense where the short-term trends are and the longer-term trends. To do that, we check in with Fernando Valley, Senior Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Fernando, I guess the news today is maybe OPEC will be cutting production. What do you what do you make of the news we're seeing today? Yeah, Paul, I think it's a very interesting uh, indication of where they see demand uh, over the next couple of months. And, uh, you know, our concern has always been that uh, the Fed tightening would lead to pain in the emerging markets. And I think that's something that we're starting to see. A lot of emerging markets struggling with a strong dollar, with uh, rising food and energy inflation. And, and lo and behold, uh, they're seeing some uh, oversupply, especially with China being slower to buy some buy crude. And we talked about uh, previously about how China was having issues with lockdowns and how that could impact their purchasing. And we're starting to see that. And you know the, the physical market can be very different from the financial market. And they're starting to see some lag on the Asian side, even though on the, on the uh, US side, we still see, <clears throat> excuse me, a very tight market. Fernando, one of the arguments that I believe the Saudi energy minister had made was that liquidity is an issue, that there's so many people who had hopped into the commodities market. I mean, we talk about it all the time, oil as this big macro hedge from investors who usually don't actually trade oil or trade commodities. I'm curious how much of that is, is skewing the numbers and skewing the price action. Okay, absolutely. And that's why we saw in 2020, April 2020, the Lichai going negative. So a lot of financial uh, speculators in the true definition of the word that they don't actually want to take the physical barrels and they can skew that market. Uh, the way that we tend to look at it is the difference between the, the crude grades themselves and Brent, Brent being the global benchmark. And when we see those differentials getting very narrow, it typically means that they are competing and it, it, there's less of a, uh, a there's a lot less a lot co a competition between the, the crude sellers and not so much between the crude buyers. And the opposing is true. So while in the beginning of the summer, you're seeing the differentials widen significantly. Now there's, <clears throat> they're starting to narrow, especially in Asia, uh, again, a sign that the activity there is, is slower than expected. Uh, Fernando, gasoline, we're down below $3.90 a gallon. Good news for the average consumer. It's like getting a kind of a tax break, if you will. What's driving that? Is, is, is more refining capacity coming online or is demand just kind of fading a little bit in the face of that, some of that higher prices we saw earlier? Well, it's the latter for sure. We are uh, both past the peak demand for the northern hemisphere so that helps uh, but we also saw weaker demand uh, in 2022 than we did in 2021 and and even uh, compared to 2019 we're still below five to six percent below those levels uh, but the other part that helps 
uh, is that uh, we're actually seeing a bifurcation between gasoline and diesel. Diesel margins are at $57 a barrel while gasoline is at 32. And because the refiners are chasing diesel, they're oversupplying gasoline. So that's helping bring the gasoline margin down significantly while diesel remains uh, very high. And we expect it will continue to, to go higher, uh, especially as we head towards winter. We'll stick to the subject of, of spreads uh, in particular. We pointed this out earlier in the show. We're looking at Brent crude with a 99 handle, WTI with a 93 handle. That is a spread of about $6 and change. What does that tell you? $6, if I'm not wrong, correct me if I am, Fernando, it's historically high when it comes to that spread, right? Absolutely. Uh, it, it tells me that the SPR releases are having that impact because you know WTI is priced in Cushing. And we're trying to, we are continuing to sell more and more crude out of Cushing as opposed to Brent uh, that is slightly more. Uh, we're, so we're basically discounting it for the transportation costs to take it to foreign markets. So it's basically showing us that we are exporting significant portions of that Cushing, uh, that Cushing release to overseas markets. How are things down in the Permian? Those boys down there uh, still making money? They are. It's certainly, and you know, it's not just crude. Natural gas, liquids, propane, butane are are rising very significantly. Natural gas prices as well, very high. Uh, so they are starting to make money. Uh, it's actually even allowed for what we call refracts when you go back into an old well and you uh, redo the fracking process so that you can get more production out of it. Uh, so we're starting to see a, a rise in, in, in those refracts. Um, to help produce, produce and, that, and that helps bypass one of the biggest issues, which is continuing to drill wells and continue to have uh, to have the 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 the, uh, the drilling rigs and yep. the other portions that are more supply constrained. I think I'm going to go down to Texas, you drill should. a couple of holes in the ground, put some wells in there, and see what I can do. I mean, they got a oil just ripping here back uh, uh, above 90. I think I could do that. Fernando Valle, Senior Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He does it for a living. He covers all things energy. Uh, he's been doing it for a couple of decades, and he is one of our go-to voices when we get a s sense of global oil, global energy. All right, let's switch to, I want to talk electric vehicles, because I actually drove an electric vehicle. I had a first, a couple of firsts a month or so ago. I drove my first pickup truck ever and drove my first electric vehicle ever, the Ford F-150 Lightning. Ah. Uh, they were kind enough to loan me for a few days, and it was awesome. So I was really skeptical about that. Did about it live EVs. up to all the hype? Totally, yeah. totally. I mean, everything. It was just an, an awesome vehicle, and the, and the electric, uh, the EV technology was pretty cool. Sam Corris, he's associate, associate portfolio manager and analyst at ARC Investment Management, the good folks at ARC. They have some passing interest in the EV market here. Sam, I'd love to get your thoughts here on the EV market as it relates to the competitive landscape because our good friends at Tesla had, had essentially had the market to themselves for a long time and, and, and wow, what an amazing job Elon Musk and the Tesla folks have done in effectively creating and commercializing this market. But now you got the Ford F-150, you got Volkswagen going all electric, you got Porsche going electric. Talk to us about how you guys think about this competitive landscape for electric vehicles. Absolutely. And, you know, I think as you're saying, the F-150 electric, I'm, I'm sure once you drive that, you're not going back to the internal combustion engine. So I think really the first place to start is what are the competitive dynamics? 
the competitive dynamics are that the internal combustion engine is losing out big time. So if you're just looking in the first half of, of 2022, internal combustion engine vehicle sales down 18.4%, battery electric vehicles up 72%. So the share gains are tremendous for electric. Uh, and then when you look into the actual uh, players who are, who are investing in this, you know, that's where things we think start to get interesting. Uh, it's a growing pie. So they're not necessarily competing with one another. Um, but what we, what we're looking at for the future is who's investing in battery capacity. That's very important. Um, and really looking to see who's putting the money where their mouth is. I think one of the, the classic, uh, arguments we've heard over time were these large traditional automakers. When they decide to go electric, they're going to crush any of the startups. Uh, but then when we, when we look at, you know, the actual CapEx and what these companies are planning, you have Ford planning seven to eight billion dollars a year in CapEx. Uh, and that's combined for internal combustion and electric. You have GM in the nine to 10 billion range. Again, that's a combination of traditional gas powered vehicles and electric. And then you have Tesla in there with seven to 10 billion dollars in capex uh over the next few years so you have tesla who's now competing with uh the incumbents and we actually forecast that they're going to outspend them uh by a significant degree and that's really going to allow them to keep market share going forward what does that mean for the challenges when it comes to scaling and producing in bulk how does the likes of tesla rivian deal with that Yes, yeah, scaling is it's a very difficult problem. And I think the electric vehicle industry is in a great position as a whole where they do seem to be uh, supply constrained. So it's good that they actually have the demand there. And so looking to scale, um, you have the production side, which is quite difficult. Uh, and this is actually where I, we think you know China has uh, an advantage here when we look at the speed at which these Chinese companies are able to scale production and even Tesla in China, right? Going from start of construction to a million vehicles produced in three and a half years uh, is, is pretty unheard of in the auto industry. And then when we look further down the line beyond just, you know, the scale, the zero to one, you know, no cars produced to one car produced, uh, then getting up to the hundreds of thousands, we start to look into the raw materials. Uh, and this is, I think, where we've seen a lot of concern is saying, okay, now that people are more convinced we're going to have an electric vehicle future, uh, where do we get all of the raw materials for this? And the good news is, is that uh, the raw materials exist, right? They're, they're out there in the earth. Um, the challenging part is going to be the processing of these raw materials uh, into what can be used in uh, battery packs for electric vehicles. And we're seeing incredible investment on this front as well. And we're, we're even seeing a shift in the battery chemistries being used to help offset some of these bottlenecks. So a great example is if we went back you know, three to four years, everyone was extremely concerned about cobalt and saying, you know, cobalt is incredibly difficult and there's, 
you know, big human rights implications in cobalt mine. And the battery industry shifted from using uh, battery chemistry that was equal parts nickel, manganese, and cobalt to a new chemistry that had uh, almost no cobalt in it. And then there was another constraint on nickel. And, you know, you heard Elon Musk on the earnings call saying, if you can, if you can mine nickel, we'll buy it. And now we're seeing a shift from batteries that are extremely nickel dense to batteries that have no nickel at all. So it's a combination of supply ramping up and the actual battery manufacturers and uh, vehicle manufacturers shifting to different chemistries to avoid those bottlenecks. All right, Sam, good stuff. Good overview of the EV space there. Sam Kors, he's Associate Portfolio Manager and Analyst at ARK Investment Management and ARK. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.